Good morning. Please pray with me and for me. Father, I give these next few minutes to you. I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would touch hearts. I pray that these, this expression uh, of mine will be love responding to love, not simply religious noise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To the best of my highly subjective and semi-self-serving recollection, I was a big shot at Lamar High School in the dazed and confused decade of the 1970s. And because I was a big shot, I got to eat lunch out on the lawn of that beautiful public school under the specially anointed big shot tree with the other designated big shots. It was the prime location for lunch on that beautiful lawn. We were not a welcoming circle of big shots. If you did not have the proper big shot credentials, you could not join the circle. And then one day, a mysterious stranger walked right up to our circle and sat down. This person clearly did not fit in. One, he was a very, very, very old man, possibly 32 or 33 years old. <laughs> Nevertheless, there he sat. And it became apparent to me that he knew the names of some of my big shot buddies. And he engaged in an amiable conversation and then got up and walked away, and I learned that this was Harry, and he was the young life guy. A couple of days later, in response to an invitation from one of the fabulous Babel sisters from Reba Drive, I found myself sitting in a young life meeting uh, in her living room. The room was packed. I kid you not. People, high school students, were sitting on the floor of that living room in that elegant setting, smoking. This was the 1970s, <laughs> when people were free in this country. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a strange scene, and then Harry stands up, and they sing some goofy songs, and he makes some stupid, ridiculous hand gestures, and I, of course, abstain from participating in such demeaning, ridiculous behavior. And then Harry orchestrated some excuse to throw a pie into some kid's face, which I thought was very funny because of my sophisticated sense of humor. <laughs> and then Harry, uh, at, a, at a moment in time, pulls a book out from behind his, out of his britches and begins to tell a story. And right then, I rudely and abruptly got up and left. And then Harry kept showing up at the Big Shot Circle, and now he knew my name. And after a few weeks, uh, I concluded he's probably an okay guy in spite of his aged condition. <laughs> and I made the decision to go back to a Young Life meeting, and I stayed the whole time, even through his little talk about Jesus. And I remember one thing vividly from that talk. Harry said, Jesus is a friend of sinners. 
At the time, I knew nothing else about Jesus. But I have clung tenaciously to that idea that Jesus is a friend to sinners for almost 45 years. Today, we're going to look at the text that is ground zero for this idea that Jesus is the friend of sinners. We're going to pick up the action uh, with Jesus making some humorous comments about the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and Pharisees. He actually compares them uh, to brats who would hang out in the marketplace. Just picture the food court of a mall circa 1995, and maybe you were one of those brats uh, back then, if you're a young person. So, so uh, here's what... Uh, Here's where the action picks up, Luke 7, 31 through 50. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like bratty children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the jiggy little tune on the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a sad and mournful song, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come uh, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So in the great Texas tradition of the blind hog that occasionally finds an acorn, the Pharisees were right about exactly one thing. Jesus is a friend of sinners. So let's continue the action uh, at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And you know this story well. I will not uh, read it to you word for word. You've already heard it. But you understand that Jesus was invited uh, to a meal at the home of a prominent religious leader. And if Jesus said, yes, of course, and he comes. We get some clues from the text that this was not a simple uh, private dinner party, but more like a banquet. In antiquity, a prominent person might have a banquet for an honored guest, and then other people in the community would be welcome to come in and sit along the outside of the walls and listen to the learned conversations. And so this was probably the setting uh, that we have in Luke chapter 7. And so Jesus is there, and they're all reclining at table. No doubt you are familiar with this uh, ancient uh, uh, Near Eastern tradition of reclining at table, so Jesus' feet were pointed out. And at that moment in time, uh, before the erudite conversation can really commence, there's an interruption by a notorious interloper, a woman who was well known in the city as a sinner. I think it is reasonable to to infer from this text that she was a prostitute, one who was sexually promiscuous and one who earned uh, money uh, in that ancient trade. And so she is there and now she is approaching, moving from the wall where she arguably wasn't welcome but could have stayed right up to the Jesus' feet. And she has with her one of the tools of her trade an alabaster jar of perfume or ointment. And it would have been an act of respect uh, back in that day uh, to uh, anoint someone's feet. And I think that was her intention. 
But before she could execute her plan, which was bold and audacious, let's be clear, she's overwhelmed by emotion and she begins to cry, uncontrollably sob. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been overtaken uh, by emotion and now you're just making a spectacle of yourself? And she's already out of place, already engaged in a bold and audacious maneuver, but she's not executing the plan as she intended with a dignified anointing of the feet. Now she's a sobbing, blubbering mess. And she sees that her tears are flooding onto Jesus' feet, so she panics and does what was totally unacceptable, lets her hair down, a scandalous act, a scandalous act, my friends, and begins to wipe his, the tears off his feet with her hair. Before she can even begin the anointing, everything now has been interrupted and disrupted. And so the hope for the erudite theological conversation uh, is now derailed, and the host who had invited Jesus there, I think, for more of a deposition than a dinner party, now felt like he had the evidence that Jesus was not a true prophet because Jesus had allowed this notorious interloper, this sinner, to let down her hair in a scandalous fashion and to touch him, to touch him and anoint his feet. And he had not pushed her away or rebuked her as any righteous man would. And of course, Jesus had a way of knowing what his critics were thinking. So he turns to his host, Simon. <clears throat> he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answers, say it, teacher. Now, we can't tell from the Greek whether this was respectful or derisive. It would have been appropriate to refer to Jesus as rabbi or teacher. Uh, and, and Simon, I think, said, you can't make things any worse for yourself. Just keep talking and dig yourself a deeper hole, my friend. And so uh, Jesus begins to speak. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed a ruinous, impossible-to-repay debt. And we don't appreciate just how ruinous debt historically has been uh, uh, for people because we have a very forgiving system, a system that allows you to wiggle out of debt through various legal maneuvers, and thank God for it. But back in the day, for most of human history, if you had a debt you could not pay, do you understand that your very freedom, possibly your life, was at stake? And this was the predicament of one of these guys. He had a ruinous, impossible to repay debt. And the other fellow had a more manageable debt. Uncomfortable, inconvenient, but we can get through it. So that's our situation. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Interesting question, right? Simon answers, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now, there's two things happening here. An implied rebuke to Simon who failed to show the basic modicum 
of hospitality. Going back to my theory that this was more of a deposition than a display of hospitality to invite Jesus into his home. And then also ratifying and endorsing what was by the standards of the day in the legal interpretation of the law of Moses, a sinful act, Jesus ratifies it and commends it with the woman who lets down her hair and wipes uh, the tears from his feet. Jesus continues, You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Frankly, for her to do this extravagant gesture and to take her ointment and to pour it out recklessly, that's basically a going out of business sale for a prostitute in first century Palestine. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which she knows are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who thinks he is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Or I think the critics who purports to forgive sins. Because that, of course, is the prerogative of God alone. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in shalom. I'll tell you what. I don't need to say another word, because that's about as good a sermon as you will ever hear. But why not? <laughs> I learned in seminary that a well-crafted sermon has three succinct, coherent, salient points that derive organically from the text. This is not a well-crafted sermon. I come to you now with six possibly profound observations. <laughs> In fact, I think what you are about to experience is a flurry of six wild punches. And I'm praying that at least one of them will connect by the power of God. So... Let's start uh, with the first one. My first observation is that this text, like many texts in the New Testament, provides us with the imperative that we must eschew our own bogus religiosity. Anybody know the definition of eschew? What's that? Get rid of. Eschew obfuscation was the great poster in the 60s. Uh, so, you know, get rid of, resist, uh, reject. And when I say bogus religiosity, what I'm referring to is what Jesus critiqued in the religious leaders of his day. Remember he says about the scribes and Pharisees, uh, the, the mighty uh, interpreters of the law, uh, that he said they loved uh, to practice their religion, to display their piety, and make a big public show of their long and uh, eloquent prayers. And they loved to make a big show and demonstration of their generous uh, giving to charity. And they loved to make a big public display 
of their, their fasting. Jesus said, of course, they're enjoying their reward here and now because they are practicing bogus religiosity. There is no reward to come in the kingdom for such audacious showmanship in the name of religion. And Jesus also critiqued the Pharisees pointedly for focusing so much on external compliance with rules and regulations, but failing to deal with the corruption in their own hearts. Remember the hilarious statement, you love to clean the outside of the dish, but not the inside of the cup, right? And then, of course, Jesus critiqued the scribes and Pharisees because of how much they relished and enjoyed their self-appointed role of the people who could look down on and judge everybody else. These are the hallmarks of bogus religiosity. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus displayed kindness to everyone who came into his path, but he had nothing but contemptuous words for the religious leaders of his day because of their bogus religiosity. And so why is it that church history from the get-go up until now, is full of people like you and me who practice bogus religiosity in the name of Jesus. There is not a good answer to that question. By the power of the Spirit, I pray that you would spot it, not in others, but in yourself. Prayerfully deal with it, as I endeavor to do. Observation number two, invite Jesus and he will come. You're familiar with Revelation 3.20, great passage, often misappropriated in evangelistic messages. He aquí yo estoy la puerta y llamo. Si alguna oye mi voz y abre la puerta. ¿Entiendes? Terrible Spanish. <laughs> The worst. <laughs> if anyone hears my, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what does Jesus say to this church in Revelation 3? I will come in to him and will dine with him and him with me. These are the words of koinonia, of deep fellowship. And you look through the Gospels, Jesus never turned down an invitation for a meal. Because he saw that at the table. We could experience what God created us for. What God longs for from us is real communion, real conversation, real relationship, koinonia. Revelation 3.20 uh, has often been used, and by me, uh, in my Young Life ministry, as the verse I would give to invite somebody to accept Jesus into their lives or their hearts. In the context, though, of Revelation 3.20, it's not an evangelistic message. It is a description about what our daily life should be as the church and as followers of Jesus. Every day, we should be extending this invitation to Jesus who's out there knocking, that he comes, he comes and fills our life. Invite Jesus and he will come. Simon invited Jesus for potentially nefarious purposes. Jesus showed up anyway. And if Simon was paying any attention, he saw an amazing display of what heaven is like. 
Observation number three. Don't confuse delusional presumption with bold humility. Simon had delusional presumption. He thought because of his impeccable credentials and his great learning and his uh, displays of righteousness that Jesus would be impressed by him and that he could be a judge and offer a critique of Jesus. This is a pattern religious people can fall into. We can never approach Jesus with any type of delusional presumption. It is true that because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have direct access to the throne of grace, according to the preacher in Hebrews. That's awesome. That's amazing. We go straight to the holy of holies. Because of the blood of Jesus, because of what he did, because of his love, we can approach, but you don't approach based on your own credentials. You don't approach based on any presumption, but you approach in utter and complete humility, knowing your access is wholly contingent on his grace, which is poured out in abundance. So the notorious interloper is a great Example of bold humility, audaciously going right to Jesus. Observation number four, the gospel thrives on interruptions. Every, every chapter of every gospel is filled with this. Jesus on his way to do something important and getting interrupted. This is just his life. All the great things in the Gospels are based on interruptions, every single one. And I could argue the same thing in the book of Acts when we see about the lives of the apostles. So it's, the fact is the Gospel thrives on interruptions. John Lennon, who's tied for third as my third favorite Beatle, tied with Ringo, If you're my third favorite Beatle, you're still pretty high on my list of people I like. So don't, you John Lennon fans, don't get on a high horse. He's, he's given credit for saying, I actually put it in a song about his son, that life is what happens when we are making, don't, can anybody say it? Life is what happens when we're making other plans. That's a great line. And John Lennon is always given credit. John Lennon stole that line from a Reader's Digest article in 1957, which is kind of funny, right? You can ask your grandparents what Reader's Digest was. Uh, so, but it's a great and true line. Life is what happens when we're busy making other plans. I think if you looked at Jesus' to-do list for any day of his life on earth, it would go like this. Item one. Wake up really early and pray. Item two, love all the knuckleheads who interrupt me. I suggest we consider the same approach because I think the kingdom breaks in in interruptions. I absolutely believe that. And we don't have that perspective, do we? If I had been at that banquet as a young uh, 
you know, theologically astute, engaged person, I would have been waiting to hear the great debate between Simon and this, you know, carpenter out of nowhere. I would have been frustrated to see the disruption caused by this notorious interloper. And I would have been missing, missing everything God had to say. The gospel and the kingdom breaks in through interruption. So pray early and often that you're ready, ready for that, that you thrive on it the way Jesus did. The penultimate observation, if you think you only need a little forgiveness, think again. I think I've said enough about that. But I suggest you build into your discipline, your regimen uh, each day. And there's a great Anglican tradition of this, uh, that you build into your regimen each day a thorough and deep meditation on the cross of Christ and then an honest accounting of how you have missed the mark. That should be a daily discipline for us. And then I think we won't make the mistake Simon made of thinking he had a manageable debt. Last observation or wild punch. Sometimes love is undignified. Do you see how Jesus turned this whole episode of the notorious interloper into an exposition of love? This is finally what it's all about for us. This is what God created us for, what God calls us to. is this loving communion with himself, right? And he initiates by pouring out love in Jesus on the cross. And following Jesus is simply love responding to love. Love responding to the most radical display of love that could ever be conceived. And this is what happened to the notorious interloper to this woman. She had in mind a dignified anointing of the feet. Now, in some people's minds, nothing she could could be dignified, but in her own mind, this would be proper and appropriate. What happened to her, though, is she was overwhelmed by the love of God, overwhelmed by how much Jesus had loved her, and she knew herself to be completely unlovable. And so she wept, she blubbered, she made a spectacle of herself, and that was 100% appropriate. Much more appropriate than Simon's clinical, transactional approach to Jesus. And I would just ask you, which approach characterizes you? Which approach characterizes me most often? When is the last time I let the Spirit truly show me how much God loves me and how much I need that love? That, that could create a moment for you. And I understand you are sophisticated, educated, respected, uh, venerable uh, uh, people in the, in the great and staid historical Anglican tradition. I appreciate that. You are people who have been radically loved by God. And he is calling you to be love responding to love.
And if occasionally that's undignified, I think there's precedent in the Anglican tradition for that. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this story of an interrupter, story of an interloper. Father, I pray that we would see that you are the great disruptor, that your love changes everything. May we respond in love to your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.